Thanks very much for coming tonight. Uh, my name is Charlie Beckett. I'm the director of POLIS, which is the uh, think tank for media and society here at uh, the London School of Economics. We're part of the media and communications department here. We're also partnered with the London College of Communication, which is part of the University of the Arts of London. Uh, a lot of our work this year has been about public service. Uh, it's been at the top of our agenda this academic year. We held a debate uh, earlier uh, in September. We did a debate on TV on trial, which is all about the TV fakery. Uh, we've debated uh, impartiality, uh, with the, uh, including with, with Evan Davis, who I just heard today has been made a presenter on the Today program. Um, and we've also hosted events looking at the idea of uh, media freedom and public service in places like Russia and Zimbabwe. And next week we've got an event looking at media freedom in China. And uh, it, all over the world, it's clear, not just here, uh, people are concerned, people want to know what role uh, the news media and generally broadcasting and communications, what role that is going to play with all the, the, the new impact of new technology and, and the economic pressures, what role will that play in their lives in the future? Um, I think it's true to say that whilst a healthy public service in broadcasting uh, is not as vital perhaps as a public service uh, that works in health or education, my, my, my view is that you don't get healthy public services and a healthy political uh, climate uh, without that public service element, be it private or publicly provided, in, in journalism. Um, so it's great to have somebody tonight uh, with us who is at the heart of the debate uh, in, the, in, in the UK. Ofcom is the independent regulator and competition authority for the UK communications industries. Uh, it has responsibility across television, radio, telecommunications, and wireless communication services. It doesn't regulate the internet or the BBC yet. Um, like, me, uh, like me, Ed Richard started as a researcher in TV, and that's where our careers completely diverge. Um, Ed went on to become um, the controller of corporate strategy at the BBC. He was also a senior advisor to the previous prime minister before joining Ofcom and he was made uh, Chief Executive Officer of Ofcom last October, so we're kind of celebrating a, a year of uh, his control, as it were, of Ofcom. I'm very, very grateful for him to spare the time tonight. Um, tonight's event uh, uh, is going to be a Q&A, a conversation, and then throw it open to some questions, uh, but we do have to try and end shortly after 7.30. Afterwards, there'll be a reception just upstairs, just go out up the next floor, and turn right and there'll be a reception where we can keep the conversation going. Um, I'd like to thank our sponsor for tonight, um, who are Chime Communication. <coughs> it's really great to have a, 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 a very serious player in the communications field like Chime involved with POLIS and involved with this debate. Um, and I'll now hand over to Dr. Damien Tambini from uh, the Media and Communications Department at the LSE to take us through the evening. Thanks very much. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, um, Ed, for coming. Um, I want to get on to public service and the outlook that Charlie mentioned in, uh, in a few minutes, but let's just go a few years back because I'd like to just briefly talk about the setting up of Ofcom and the original objectives for setting up this regulator because you were involved then with a different hat on and maybe you could just tell us a bit about how you were involved and what the aims were. 
Uh, yes. Uh, well, the, the aim was a very simple one, really. Um, I think the, the primary aim was very simple. The primary aim was uh, in anticipation of convergence, anticipation of uh, electronic networks of all kinds being capable of uh, offering services of all kinds. Uh, that we wanted the regulatory framework and the institution, uh, institutional form of regulation in this country to be uh, not necessarily ahead of that game, but anticipating it, uh, bearing in mind that you can't just create uh, in public sector institutions of this kind overnight. So we had to anticipate a little bit and try to establish a framework which would survive uh, and would be uh, strong enough and appropriate for the changes which we envisage. By and large, uh, those changes are now unfolding. Uh, so that was, that was very clearly the primary objective, to allow you then to regulate in a consistent way across different electronic communication networks and to regulate content where appropriate in a consistent way as well. Uh, there were other objectives. Uh, there was a scope, for, uh, scope for efficiency savings by bringing five organisations into one, which I'm pleased to say we've, we've delivered. Uh, there was a strong sense that uh, by creating a single institution of greater scale than its predecessors, it would enable the organisation to have some, uh, some clout, some capability, uh, some, uh, some capacity to actually make, make a difference in promoting competition and preserving the public interest where that was appropriate. Okay. Can everybody here at the back, we'll just move a step closer... Um, is, that, is that not what that tilt, sounds like? It's tilt, tilt, well, I, have to, I have to lean Ed, forward. Ed was just... <laughs> just <laughs> to repeat all of that. <laughs> um, well, I'll summarise for you. I mean, Ed was just describing his former role, which was as a pol policy advisor to the Prime Minister, actually designing the original policy proposal for Ofcom. Um, and one of the things you said was, was um, that the regulator should be a stronger organisation. Um, and... Some of the other challenges um, uh, across the world for regulators are that they are independent of government and independent of the bodies that they regulate. Now, uh, getting on for five years into the life of Ofcom, how has that challenge of independence and the need to be a strong regulator manifested itself? What have been the main challenges to your independence of action? Well, I, I think on independence, uh, it's worked fantastically well. I, I think independent regulation is uh, so well established in the UK now uh, that it is almost, it's almost as a quasi-constitutional feature of the landscape. I mean, there is no politician in this country that I'm aware of, no serious politician, who would dare risk uh, challenging the independence of, uh, of us uh, or indeed a series of other regulators because the risk of doing so uh, of being exposed of having done so is just too great uh, and I think that is a cross party position it's a cross party view uh, and it's, it's very, in my experience it's been uh, entirely respected uh, I don't feel we've been put under any pressure um, of any kind uh, at any point which was inappropriate uh, not on a single occasion uh, we work hard to obviously ensure that Politicians of all colours uh, at the right time are, know what, we, what we're planning to do, but in an appropriate way, uh, and it, it hasn't been a problem. Um, in terms of being a strong organisation, I think you know, we are by definition far bigger than the predece our predecessors. 
there were about 1,200 people in total in our predecessors when you added them all up. Uh, we are now at about 780. Uh, but 780 with at least half of whom are work on the analytical research policy side uh, packs quite a punch. And I think we've done a lot of work, a lot of work which has demonstrated that if you can, uh, if you can base your work in you know, quality research and analysis, then you can have uh, you can have an impact on, in, in the markets that you regulate in a positive way. And I don't say that because we want to be big or powerful or strong for the sake of it. That would be completely pointless. Uh, we want to be able to do things effectively in the public interest. Okay. Uh, and sometimes to do that, you've got to be able to, you've got to be big enough and strong enough be able to stand up to very big companies. I mean, later on I want to talk about your general duty, which is to maintain and strengthen public service broadcasting. Um, but this morning, Ofcom has announced um, uh, a move which is really going to be quite important for the public service broadcasters in this country in terms of going forward post-switchover. And that relates to finding space on uh, Freeview, on digital terrestrial broadcasting, a kind of technical sounding issue. Can you explain what you've announced today and why it matters? Yes, uh, by all means. We, we, uh, I do think this is a very important moment uh, in the evolution of the broadcasting system in this country. Uh, what, what we've announced this morning is a proposal through which we are able to clear an entire multiplex that currently it's a one-sixth of Freeview, one-sixth of the DTT system. Uh, we've been, we, we, the proposal is to clear one of those uh, multiplexes uh, and then to be able to change uh, the compression standard and the coding technology to use MPEG-4 and DVB-T2, for those of you who know what they mean, but the consequence of that is that we can put far more uh, far more channels, there's far more capacity made available. So where you can currently only put eight channels on that multiplex, now we'll be able to put as many as 20. Or we'll be able to put four high-definition channels on it, uh, possibly rising to five in due course. So as a result of this, we, if we can, uh, we can make sure the proposal comes through, uh, Freeview will be able to migrate to being able to offer, for example, uh, for uh, possibly more high-definition channels, uh, free-to-air, universally available across the UK, uh, wh which will provide the first step, but a crucial step, to enable the whole platform to evolve and develop over time. Uh, and I think that secures its future uh, as, a, as a very significant and powerful feature of the broadcasting landscape in the UK. Okay. Th this is good news for the BBC. The BBC has argued that High definition is the default standard of the future. It's um, going to be the, the standard that everybody wants to re receive their television in. So therefore, Freeview needs high definition to survive. Um, but Ofcom in the past has argued that the best way of deciding how to use the airwaves, how to use the spectrum, is to use market mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Has something changed? No. <laughs> Uh, what we've done, I think, is be able to, unusually, we, we, I think we've been able to, we, it look, looks like we may be able to have our cake and eat it. Uh, our approach on the release of the spectrum that will be liberated by digital switchover 
at the moment remains that we will release it to the market and we will see how much people want to bid for it and who places the most value upon it. The proposal that I've just described is using existing spectrum. So it is all done within the existing spectrum that is already used by Freeview. So there's no new spectrum required. It just requires a technical upgrade uh, using these new specifications and it, it very significantly enhances by 160% the capacity that you can carry on that spectrum. So a route forward for high definition television on Freeview but also the opportunity to release the spectrum uh, liberated by digital switchover for a variety of other uses which may include further high definition television but the opportunity to do both things. Okay, I'm, I just need to clarify this in my own mind. Um, what, what, Ofcom has this duty to, to maintain public service broadcasting, which we'll come to in a minute. Um, why is it, and how, how does the mechanism work whereby I, I might think that other services might usefully use that chunk of spectrum, however it's released and however it was previously planned. Um, for example... Um, extending access via wireless to broadband services, mm -hmm. for example. There are lots of, technically lots of services that could use that bit of the publicly owned spectrum resource. Mm -hmm. Why is it that these will get high, defini high definition is, is likely to get this mm -hmm. and these other services won't? Well, I, th I think the answer to that is that the, the, the main practical answer to that is that this, mu this multiplex was pre- uh, predetermined as a public service broadcasting multiplex many years ago and that's something we support uh, the question about public service broadcasting the tension or apparent tension between public service broadcasting and spectrum for public service broadcasting uh, and our approach of market mechanisms for spectrum release in general is not a question of one or the other to the one to the exclusion of the other it's a question of striking the right balance between them and this multiplex was always designated as a PSB MUX uh, and we're perfectly content and happy with that and therefore it should be used for PSB purposes. So in this case uh, that seems to be the right thing to do. It, gives, it creates a path forward through which uh, HD can be on Freeview which is something that uh, contrary to what some have suggested we, f we support, we want to see that, we want to see that because of comp competitive reasons but it also provides a route through which uh, the main public service broadcasting channels and services will be able to uh, offer HD services. So I think it does, it does meet both objectives. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, moving on, um, you mentioned the challenges of, of, of um, relationships with powerful incumbents and uh, governments, um, potentially. Wouldn't a European regulator be in a better position to deal with those pressures? Well, sadly, sadly not. Um, the, the, let, me, let, me do the, let me answer this in two, in two phases. Uh, I think and we believe that there, there are some challenges that are transnational in nature. Uh, regulation across Europe is not as strong as it should be right the way across Europe. And there is a challenge, therefore, for Europe and Europe's economy uh, in this area. So we are very supportive of uh, more coordination and collaboration and more effective, higher-quality regulation across the whole of the European Union. 
so it's not that we don't believe there's an issue here. We think there is. The question is, what's the best way of solving it? And the proposal on the table at the moment from the Commission is uh, a European super regulator which is governed and controlled by half, 50% of the Commission and 50% member state governments. So, as a, on the contrary, rather than securing independent regulation, you're politicising it. Suddenly, economic regulation of telecoms, which has, in this country and in some other countries, successfully become the preserve of independent regulators, is suddenly going to become politicised again. Uh, the notion that the Commission is not a political body doesn't bear any scrutiny. Uh, commissioners are almost all politicians. Uh, uh, member state governments will take their orders from their political leaders at that point in time. So you will be politicising and giving political control to economic regulatory decisions uh, as a result of this proposal and we think that would be a retrograde step. It would be much better to significantly enhance and reform the European Regulators Group which is the coordinating body of all the independent national regulators make that much more effective, reform it uh, give it pro proper governance, give it an executive director, give it resource, and let that take the lead. Then you secure independence, you keep regulation close to national markets because all national markets are very different, uh, so you get better quality regulation, but you also meet the European challenge, which is there. Yeah, I mean, you've, been, you've gone very public on this one. You've published uh, an article um, uh, under your own name in the, in the FT recently, very robust, um, yet... You, you will inevitably be subject to the criticism that you're basically um, protecting the uh, interests of the regulatory body itself. Mm. How do you deal with that? It's completely invalid. That's how you deal with it. Completely you just say wrong. completely invalid. Uh, it's nonsense. No, it's absolute nonsense. Uh, it, it won't. Even if you had a super regulator, it wouldn't. It wouldn't really make. It wouldn't make very much difference to us. Uh, because we are, we are well resourced and we, we can do high quality work uh, and you know, we, tend to, we tend to be the first to do all the market reviews and so on in, in Europe along with one or two others. Uh, and the European regulators' focus wouldn't be on us. The European regulators' focus would be you know, on some of the other member states where regulation has taken a bit of a longer time to, to, to get going. Uh, and the Commission openly uh, accept that and admit that. So it's nothing to do with uh, uh, institutional protection or anything of that kind. And as I say, I'm very happy to uh, concede sovereignty, if that is the right word, to a European <coughs> entity. Uh, it's just the question is, what's the right entity? And I, I, I have made proposals for uh, the reform of the European Regulators Group in which we would, we would, we would move to majority voting, uh, we would be subject to binding um, uh, agreements on common positions, you know, all sorts of things which would, which would technically reduce Ofcom's you know, okay. power. So we'll, it is we'll, absolute nonsense. We, we will look forward to watching this one play out over, over the course well, of the next month. I should say, just before we move off then, because the whole debate, there is a risk that that debate just turns into a Euro super regulator or not debate. And actually, 90% of what the Commission proposes we agree with. Uh, we're probably the only regulator in Europe who agree, we're probably the only country in Europe who agree with 90% of it. Most of what they're proposing outside of this European super regulator, which is not correctly constructed, apart from that, 
functional separation powers for regulators, exactly what we've done to BT. Uh, spectrum liberalisation, all been led by the UK. Enhanced consumer protection powers, what we've been calling for. Uh, not promising, not guaranteeing the digital dividend to the broadcasters, <coughs> what we've done in the UK. Most of the, most of the other policies are very closely associated with or indeed have been led by the UK and we agree with vast swathes of them so this European super regulator is a bit dangerous okay. we, we agree with 90% of the, what, they're, what they're doing one of the things I hear very often is that Ofcom is a creature of statute and the statute in question is the 2003 Communications Act mm. um, one of the things it asks you to do is a kind of a health check of public service broadcasting um, every few years, Ofcom does its review of public service broadcasting um, uh, it, as a way to fulfil its duties to maintain the, 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 the strength of, of pub, public service broadcasting. Your first review, if I may say, uh, was a little bit of a doom and gloom from the point of view of public service broadcasting. Um, and you're about to enter your second review. Um, is it going to be just as bad? for public service broadcasting? Well, it, it, was, uh, it was doom and gloom for the old model. Uh, it was doom and gloom in the sense that we highlighted that because of the penetration of digital TV, we couldn't rely upon the public service broadcasting system uh, that we've, we, we all grew up with uh, in the digital age. And I guess I wouldn't call that doom and gloom, I'd call that realistic. Uh, and what we did, I hope, was force people to face up to that change and force people to start facing up to what we needed to do to respond to it. Uh, and I regard that as a positive thing because the alternative was to pretend it wasn't happening, uh, to carry on as if nothing was changing, and then you just sleepwalk into the end of what has been a high-quality system of public service broadcasting in this country for many, many years. One of the things that, that, that Ofcom has, has clearly said should be done about this, um, potentially, one of the things that it's put on the table is, is a public service publisher, which is a, um, an on-demand content provision mechanism and a funding mechanism, in a sense, a BBC for the, for the on-demand age. Um, I'd like to hear your description of what you personally think it might be. Um, first of all, um, before we go on to the questions of what kind of um, failure in market provision this kind of body mm -hmm. might be addressing. Okay, well, the, 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 I think the PSB review last time really, you know, there were a number of insights in it, but you could, you could highlight two core ones. Uh, the first would be that the old analogue linear broadcasting system was, was falling into disrepair, could, couldn't work in the same way. Outside of the BBC, the system in which we uh, imposed public service broadcasting obligations on ITV, Channel 4 and, I, and 5 uh, was, was, is, is not going to be sustainable in the form that it's been for the last 20 years. The second essential insight was to say, uh, look, if you start with a clear view about what public service broadcasting is about, what its purposes and characteristics are, uh, you've then got to ask yourself, how do you meet those in a digital age? And the one thing that I think we were very clear about is that you can't solely and exclusively meet those in, the, in, in, the, in where we are today, let alone where we will be in five to ten years' time, just through linear traditional broadcasting. Uh, 
because audiences are moving elsewhere, particularly younger people. You know, they are going online in massive numbers, they're using mobile devices, they, they, want, they, want, they want on-demand services, and so on and so forth. So the very straightforward insight I think we had was to say, if, you want to, if the old system is ending, and we want to reimagine, and we need to reinvent uh, PSB for a new, a new age, not only do we have to recognise the deficiencies of the old system and how that is falling apart, but we also have to recognise what works in the new era. And what works in the new era, era it seemed to us, um, is that you have to say, um, what are the public purposes we're trying to achieve? Start with that, be clear about that. But then say, what's the best way of delivering them? And as we all know now, but perhaps was less clear three and a half, four years ago, uh, to do that today, of course you need linear broadcasting, but you also need a broadband online on-demand set of services as well. And, and that took us to saying, well, what about a, a new institution or a new organisation that was purely focused on that online broadband world and that was thinking about how you deliver public purposes? How do you create public service content uh, in, in the online broadband world? How do you use the forms and interactivity of that world to meet public purposes in an exciting way, just as once we had to invent and imagine how we met those public pur purposes in a linear broadcasting world. So what, what, will, the, what will the body do? Well, we, we're still working up uh, what it might be. In, 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 Is it a pot of line. money? Well, Is it a it, portal? I, it, could, <laughs> it could be a number of things. But the, 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 the core idea at its heart is a very simple one, which is that you want somebody, uh, some entity or entities, uh, that may or may not be linked to an existing broadcast or an existing institution, that is saying to itself, we have a mission, we have a purpose to meet public purposes, but to do so starting from an, an online broadband, on-demand view of the world. Now, of course, inevitably that is going to, you would imagine that's going to involve spending some money, probably commissioning some content, probably in that environment entering into partnerships, uh, probably thinking creatively about distribution. Uh, it almost certainly means uh, using the power uh, and creativity of people uh, rather than just producers. So, you know, accessing and, uh, and deploying all the creativity of user-generated content and so on and so forth. Uh, and and that, that's the, that is the sphere we're in here. Uh, this and, and this sounds very, very, very exciting to me um, insofar as I can grasp exactly what, what this body will do. Can I just quote to you from the um, House of Commons Select Committee on yeah. Cultural Media and Sport um, reported last week on public service media content, I think that was the, name, the title of the report. Um, and, and their report... Um, paragraph 21 reads, given the huge amount of public service content currently available on new media, we believe that the creation of a new public service publisher, as currently envisaged by, envisaged by Ofcom, is unnecessary. The creation of a new public service content institution for new media would run the risk of distorting the market and impeding innovation. Well, it's always difficult to get politicians to take the future seriously, isn't it? <laughs> Um, I, I just don't agree with that, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, you, can, you can make an argument. You know, let, let, let's, let's, let's replay and imagine, imagine 
that you swap the words there, you swap the PSP and online mode, imagine you swap those words for broadcasting and BBC. Right. All the same <coughs> arguments could be made. Now, if, you, if, you, if you imagine for a second that we didn't have the BBC uh, and someone said, let's create the BBC, you would say, and that committee would no doubt say, hang on a minute, that would distort the market. Uh, and then they would say, there is plenty of provision by the private sector already. Look at ITV, look at Five, look at MTV, look at Sky News, look at, you know, and so on and so forth. And if that is the way you thought about it, you, wouldn't, you would never create the BBC. And yet, by and large, every, most people in this country think the BBC, for all its, you know, warts and so on and so forth, it, it, it is a good thing. And we are collectively better off as a result of having it. Do you think we need uh, to think and, about and, it? And therefore, therefore, the question isn't, is there provision by the market? The question, because, because if, you, if that was where you started, there is provision in the market. There's provision of linear broadcasting by the market. So you wouldn't have the BBC or Channel 4. The question is, is the market providing sufficient as much of what we want in relation to public purposes and public service broadcasting, public service content, as we as a society would like to see? That's the question, not is the market providing any of it. And in my view, what broadcasting, the history of broadcasting shows is that the country is richer uh, and better off as a result of a public-private mixed economy in this kind of content creation uh, than it is in a, with a pure private model. The only country which really flourishes, and this is arguable, with a purely private model is the US. And the reason the US does is because its market is so vast that... Uh, the amount of money it can spend on investment on original programming is huge, and there is no other country like it anywhere in the world. Okay, I mean, that, for me, that raises some, some very technical questions about what market failure is. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in my experience of, I mean, going back to the first question about the setting up of Ofcom, one sometimes has the impression that there are kind of two souls in Ofcom, um, or two ways of thinking about um, uh, market failure, one of which may be an economist's view, and one leaves more scope for public policy um, in terms of defining what it is that yeah. we want in, as a route to defining what the market fails to provide, rather than identifying you know, economic reasons why the market might fail. The first um, review of public service broadcasting seemed to side really with the first view of market failure. Also some of the thinking within the BBC around market failure also potentially think that sets that up. Does it, is it difficult with it, within a regulator that is a creature of statute to come up with those reasons, things that we want to provide that the market is failing to provide? Isn't that a role for government? Um. It certainly is a role for government, and in some cases, uh, I think uh, it, government uh, can and will take the lead, and in many of these cases, government will take the decision. Uh, and, for example, a lot of what we've been talking about in relation to public service broadcasting, uh, the final decisions will rest with government. But we were given a broad remit to look at uh, the interests of the citizen and the interests of the consumer, and that's a shorthand for saying... Uh, consumer, as it were, you know, well-functioning competitive markets and uh, the citizens' interest, those, those other concerns that we may have because we are individuals in a society 
uh, and care not only about our own private transactions but uh, the interests of the so wider community. And that, you know, we, we've got to ride both those horses. Personally, I'm entirely comfortable riding both those horses. And whenever we think about these problems, we've, we've got to weigh one as well as the other. And I think in, in broadcasting, it's where they really come to a head. We've got to worry about competition, but we've also got to worry about the broader citizens' interest, if you like, and, that's, uh, that's, and that, the, the greatest manifestation of that is the judgments you make about public service broadcasting. So I mean, I'm going to open up for questions uh, soon, but on the public service publisher, have you taken it as far as you can push it? Isn't, isn't it the case that the next move is for government on this? No, I, I think it's incumbent upon us and the many people who express great interest in it uh, to us to develop some more thinking. Uh, uh, we, 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 we've done quite a lot of thinking about it and, that, and that's what we want to do as part of the PSB review. So we'll put some more ideas forward, flesh it out more, see what level of interest we can create. Uh, we've already had one or two approaches from people about pilots uh, and see if, you know, see if we can keep developing the idea. Ultimately, the government will have to decide whether it wants to fund or create such an entity or, uh, or as an in independent uh, activity or append it or uh, associate it with some other institution or those sorts of ideas. The, the core, you know, I, I don't feel precious about um, the, the idea beyond the core insight. And the core insight is that whatever model we have for public service broadcasting in the age that we're in now and the age that we're going to, there is no version of it that I can see in which the model is just linear, linear broadcasting. Any model for it has to be in reality about public service content that is distributed and reaches people across a range of different media. Just before um, I pick up that, that, that is the core insight. And interestingly enough, despite things that you read you know, in select committee reports and so on, I quite rarely come across anybody now who contests that central proposition. Well, Ofcom is a convergent regulator for a convergent world. Um, one, of the, one of the things that you're being asked to do at the moment is to work with government thinking about harmful content for children. Mm. Um, and the government's review deals with internet, games, uh, and a range of platforms, including broadcasting. Is the internet something that you're spending more and more time thinking about in terms of content? Um, more, uh, not that much more. I mean, we, are, we are thinking about it in relation to the Byron Review uh, and the impact of um, violent material on the internet. Uh, and I think it's, my own view is that it's, it's the right time to be doing a review like that. Uh, I think with 50-odd, 50-60% of households with broadband, uh, the figure's much higher for homes with children, um, PCs in bedrooms, TVs capable of plugging broadband. All these developments mean that we as a society just have to calmly think about how we want to adapt to a situation in which the great riches of the internet are fully available in audio, video and text form in the living room but, but at the same time so are some of the more dark, darker sides of the internet and what our approach is going to be in that context. It doesn't presuppose that anyone starts regulating it it doesn't presuppose that we need powers it doesn't presuppose anything but I think now is the right time to just 
quietly and thoughtfully reflect upon that? Five years ago, people would have said you should not, on principle, regulate Internet content, mm -hmm. and you can't anyway. What exactly has changed? Well, I, I think two things have changed. Um, the, 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 shouldn't and, the should, there's a shouldn't and can't. Uh, let's do them in reverse order. The can't, uh, I mean, if you, if you talk to the technologists in particular five years ago, uh, as many of you will remember, the technologists would have all told you, you, know, you can't regulate the Internet, it's impossible. It's a distributed network. Uh, it's simply impossible. And you would have the, the spiel about how you know, it's simply impossible to regulate the Internet. Well, like it or not, uh, and by and large I don't like it, but like it or not, there are a series of states in the world who have proved beyond doubt that if you want to regulate the Internet, you absolutely can. Which countries? China, Saudi Arabia, North Korea, uh, various other Middle Eastern countries. They all absolutely successfully regulate the Internet. For me, in highly undesirable ways uh, and in ways which I would not countenance in this country. But they do do it. So you the proposition you, that you cannot regulate the Internet has been proven to be false. Uh, the second proposition is that you shouldn't. Now, that is obviously more difficult. Uh, the, the, the view five years ago was that it was a nascent... Uh, um, uh, phenomenon uh, we didn't know that much about it it was growing incredibly quickly there was a burst of innovation it was fantastically exciting and at that point in time the last thing you should be thinking about was putting the regulatory boots on and starting to pass legislation and I agreed with that and I think that was, that was the right thing to do and there was widespread consensus about that uh, we're in a different place now uh, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's not something that a, a small number of geeks have got in their bedroom. You know, over 50% of British households have got it in broadband form. And as I said, for house, uh, families with children, that number is much higher, 65% or something like that. And the numbers keep going up. So it's not a minor, minority activity. It's a mainstream activity. It is not narrowband. It's broadband. This is part of our lives. This is part of the fabric of our lives now. And therefore, the question needs to be one. Uh, the, the question of should you needs to be placed in, the, in that context rather than the context of five years ago. That doesn't mean, as I say, that you, you, that you necessarily do, but it's mean, it means it's the right time, in particular in relation to harmful content uh, for children, that it's a good time to just think about that carefully. So... I'm, I'm, after this one more question, I'm, I'm going to open it up for questions, but um, your, um, dare we say, axis of countries um, that are filtering um, the Internet <laughs> content, um, the, uh, we, we, we can, I think, ask questions about the historical um, development of this, because obviously BT, CleanFeed, and um, various um, uh, Internet service providers in Europe mm. are... Uh, using the same technologies effectively to filter out content. Um, but because it is possible to use these filtering technologies, the implication is that it should at least be considered within the framework of the Byron Review um, that um, filtering um, is an option. Is that what you're proposing? 
Well, I mean, fil filtering is an option. Um, I use filtering at home for my children. Server level filtering. Um, well, they, they, that's one of the debates. You know, where does the filtering take place? I mean, at the moment, the most uh, clearly the least regulatory, least intrusive form of filtering would be a decision made by the parents at home or by the individual at home, uh, you know, on the PC, and that is that is the least intrusive form of it. But the implication of your comments on China was about server Well, the implication of my comments on, on China is that you could do that, not that you should do it. Uh, and you definitely can So do you should it. consider doing it within the framework of the well, review? Well, it is, it is, it is if, if, if you ask the question, what is possible, that is one of the things which is possible. That does not necessarily make it desirable. Uh, it is much more intrusive, it's much more costly, it's much more you know, all sorts of things uh, of that nature. Uh, so you have to be, I think, very cautious in relation to this. Uh, you have to identify the concern that we have here because there's also a slight element of moral panic uh, in the air and we have to be clear about the extent to which there is risk for uh, younger children in particular. Uh, be be hard-headed about that and not... And not not, not imagine that we're living in the 1950s. You know, children are pretty smart about these things. So be hard-headed about that. Uh, make sure that your judgments are based on real research and evidence. And then when you've got a clear view of the risk, uh, you might conclude that nothing needs to be done. Or you might conclude that there are, there's more that could be done, for example, from a self-regulatory approach. There's more that could be done through what is often called media literacy. In other words, addressing what is, a, what is very clearly there, which is the very significant gap at the moment between the skills and understanding of internet technology of children and their parents. Uh, so if you ask children uh, about uh, you know, the, the, their understanding of the tools and technology and filtering and so on, they know quite a lot about it, and the average parent knows almost nothing about it. So there's, a, there's, there's, there's actually just a straightforward... Uh, literacy issue in relation to these challenges and it may be that that is the best way to tackle this to spread wider uh, more, more uh, sophisticated understanding of what, of what you can do to protect children from harmful material if you, if you want to in the home Okay Questions um, Range of hands here and then one here and one at the back Okay um, Do we have mics for questions? Um, one here. Yes. If you can just say who you are and keep the questions relatively short. Thanks. David Evans, philosophy student. Um, okay. Sure, you can take a little bit of time to formulate that one here. Good evening. Martin Moore from the Media Standards Trust. Um, ITV uh, recently announced that they were going, they're planning to cut their regional news spending um, by uh, about 50%. Um, James Purnell expressed some interest in the future provision of regional news. Um, could you talk a little bit about Ofcom's plans to, or how Ofcom plans, if Ofcom plans to intervene in the provision of regional news um, to potentially um, rescue it from crime. Yeah, let's, take, let's just take a couple regional news. And then Actually, my, my question was very much on the same lines um, because 
you have said, and Dr. Thomas very often made it clear, that one of the strengths of the system we have in public service broadcasting is the diversity of funding, the mixture between public funding and commercial funding. So I wanted to ask for you to say something more about the decision not to support, uh, with regulatory support, the commercial companies in um, supporting ITV and regional news would be simply one. Because, you know, um, Ofcom knows, as anyone who knows the history of broadcasting knows, that the reason for that uh, strong competition between those different forms of funding has been that the commercial companies have been supported in their public service input by the regulator of the day. And that was a clear decision on the part of Ofcom not to do that. I'm going to take these in groups of three. There's one just here, front. Elizabeth Smith from the Commonwealth Broadcasting Association. And my question is rather off-beam, but it, I'm asking it because you just might know the answer. In some of the um, developments in Pakistan, GOTV, which has been uplinked from Dubai, has suddenly been cut off. And I just wondered if there are any ITU regulations or other regulations which the government of the United Arab Emirates is in breach of in suddenly cutting off a commercial contract to uplink something so that it can then be relayed on? Or is it a free-for-all and is there no breach of any regulations? Right. Well, let me ask that one quickly because, unfortunately, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm, very, I'm very happy to find out for you, and I, I definitely could find out, but I, I just I simply don't know. Uh, but if you drop me an email, I'll, I will find out for you. Uh, it's a very interesting question. Um, regional news. Um, uh, we, uh, we, we should be very clear about this issue of support of ITV or not. Uh, we have argued very consistently that uh, while they have licenses and while those licenses have value, in other words, while we're still in this analogue world, uh, we would expect ITV to meet the obligations that we've set out. But before I come on to the implications of that of regional news, you know, we should all be very, very clear about this. The value of the licenses that ITV hold are nothing like what they were five years ago and are nothing like what they were 10 or 15 years ago. For those of you old enough to remember, uh, you, know, you will remember like me the days when ITV uh, could uh, make huge economic returns, very substantial profits, the proverbial license to print money. And they did so at the same time as scheduling... Uh, um, what is the name? Um, World in Action at 8.30 in the evening alongside or opposite Panorama on BBC One. Yeah. A very expensive piece of current affairs which drew a very substantially smaller audience and they you know, could still make a huge amount of money. In, in a multi-channel digital television age, those days are gone. And those days have been going every day since the first multi-channel television arrived. And now, 86% of this country have got multi-channel television. By 2012, that will be 100%. So our ability to say to ITV, you will show World in Action in peak, or you will show this number of hours of children's programming, or you will show this amount of regional news, when every single time we do that, it costs them a lot of money. Every single time we do that, 
there is a point at which if we go too far that with that, they will simply turn around and say, it is no longer worth us having this licence. Here you are, have it back. Is that altered by the new deal on uh, HD? Don't you, in uh, a sense, reintroduce spectrum scarcity? We, 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 that is one of the attractive features of the proposal we have made this morning, potentially. Uh, it absolutely is, uh, potentially. But even, even with that, it's a very different world. You know, e, you know, for, even with HD on Freeview, you've still got 35, 40, 45 channels. You've got you know, 9 million people on satellite. You've got another 3 million on cable. You've got IPTV coming through. The world is very different. So our ability to do this is, is completely different. So you have to bear that in mind. Now, what's happened on regional news is that we have got powers to uh, require them to show regional news, uh, um, and we have got no intention of dropping those powers or not, and not, uh, and not making sure they do. What we do not have powers for is to determine the amount of spend on re regional news. We do on national news. We've got a lock on national news. So on regional news, ITV are free to make judgments about the amount of resource they put into it. Uh, what they're not allowed to do is just drop regional news programming without our permission. They have made proposals on that in public. They have not submitted a formal proposal to us yet. We have not even begun a consultation on that topic, and absolutely no decision has been made. Okay. Let's take three more questions. There's plenty of hands. One here, first of all, and there, and then, and there. Hi, I'm Jimmy Tan from City University. Uh, my question is related to what you've just been talking about. Uh, I just wanted to get your reaction to suggestions that the public licence fee money should be given to broadcasters who do do public service programming. What do you think about that? So do you mean Channel 4? Well, ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm just here. Uh, Nico McDonald, I'm a writer on innovation. Um, I just want to pick up on this uh, discussion of the PSP um, and your observations about uh, what happens in a multi-channel age and audiences going elsewhere. And I think there's a, maybe an illogicality in this, in that I think actually, to an extent, people, kids, uh, adults, are actually going online in order to get away from existing public service content. Uh, it's not that we've given them lots of channels and suddenly they've all done these things. I mean, when World in Action was being screened, people would still go to the pub, they could still not watch television, and yet people did watch mm -hmm. these programs because they were engaged in social, civic life and so on. And I think the problem, a priori issue, is the disengagement in social and political life. And to set up a PSP which tries to then deliver this content to people where they run off to uh, may not be the best solution to that problem. You, you can fact, take a may, horse to water. It may turn people off public sector content even more. Okay. Any more questions? Um, Chris Goddard. I spent 40 years in television making documentaries and current affairs programs, one of which was this week, which was a direct rival to World in Action. It was indeed. Um, a very basic question, really. Since all the guidelines, all the uh, philosophy, if you like, seems to be directed to the idea that the defining characteristic of programming is popularity. Uh, that everything really depends on the largest number of people receiving it, wanting it, etc., etc., and they'll move somewhere else if they don't like it. How is this compatible with anything that one could reasonably describe as public service broadcasting, 
which particularly in the field of in investigative journalism or journalism which is critical of the establishment, journalism which is looking at things that most people don't want to know about or challenging sources of power and authority that badly need challenging. These are not going to be popular events. Now, it, it seems to me that there's a pretty basic contradiction here, and I'd like you, if you could, to very briefly describe what you mean by public service broadcasting, because <laughs> we've been referring to it throughout this discussion without ever actually laying down any clear parameters. Okay, that's three. Right. Uh, license fee distribution. Uh, I think you have got to... Uh, I think the, the question about the... Uh, funding of public service broadcasting and um, public service content uh, beyond sort of 2010, 2012 is an unavoidable question that will have to be addressed. And there are only four sources of funding, really. Uh, there's general taxation, there's hypothecated spectrum or some sort of hypothecated funding. Uh, there is indirect funding of the kind that we've we've used in the past but it's significantly lower than it is now so free spectrum that sort of thing and the fourth is the license fee and when we get to it we have got to decide or in due course the government will have to decide how much public service broadcasting we want and uh, what model of what institutional mix we want to deliver it and what the funding source or sources are and those are the fundamental questions that we have to resolve and you could end up saying uh, all we need is the BBC and the rest of the market and the licence fee stays exactly where it is. That is definitely one answer. Uh, my own view is that that would not be the best answer because I think the BBC has always been at its best when it has been challenged and contrasted with alternatives. Uh, you know, ITV at its best, Channel 4 at its best and to some extent 5 as well. Uh, and, and then pressure from the market more generally. And the, that plural mix of public and private is, to me, the, the, uh, the heart of the most exciting and the best form of public service, of, of broadcasting system that any country has had. So that question is unavoidable, um, and I think we will get to it and answer it in due course. Uh, now... Uh, people going off, I mean, the interesting, I, I think the interesting mistake that um, lies at the heart of, you know, your presumption, Nico, is that people have gone from TV. Uh, they haven't really gone from TV. They're just going to the internet as well. I mean, the number of viewing hours uh, for television has been remarkably stable. Uh, and, and let me give you one other fact. So they've gone which, from public service TV. Well, well, they have gone from they have gone from uh, some public service broadcasting, from some public service TV. But uh, I'll give you a, I'll give you another statistic in a minute, which will illustrate the extent of how how resilient it is. Uh, inevitably, if you've got five channels, and then overnight you have 45 or 300, you know, it is absolutely inevitable that the viewing share will reduce I mean, as night follows day. So we shouldn't be in any way remotely surprised by that. So the fact that there is less viewing for those channels and for some of those programs is not a matter of surprise, and it's not a matter of you know, revelation or indeed particular interest, because it's so obvious. What, what the question you have to ask then is, are those channels and are those programs still delivering a sufficient uh, impact and reach and, and audience uh, that, that means that it's still worthwhile 
having a, a public, public support for them alongside what the market would provide. And I think that helps answer the succeeding question as well. It is true that some of those programs uh, do not have audiences as high as they used to. That is absolutely true. And if those audiences uh, reduced to a number that was uh, in a below a certain level, you would say it's not worth the candle anymore. But actually, they still bring in millions and millions of viewers. Now, let me give you an example of news. Okay? News is at the heart of any notion of what public service broadcasting is. And the remarkable thing about news, uh, national, UK national news, on broadcast television is this. In the last six years, uh, everybody has used the internet far, far more. We all know that. We all have. Uh, the rise in volume of activity on the internet is, has been enormous. And the rise in the significance of the internet as a provider of news and information has obviously increased. But the remarkable thing is that if you ask people, uh, as we have done at two, in two different points four years apart, if you ask people what is their primary source of news, the extraordinary thing is that two-thirds of the people in this country still say said in 2002 it was broadcast television news, and two-thirds of the people in this country still say it's broadcast television news. It has not moved one percentage point in four years, despite the surge of increase in activity of the Internet. The Internet as a source of news has also risen very significantly, but what seems to be happening is that it's a complement, not a substitute. People do it at the office, they do it on the move, they do it uh, at PCs. They are still going to uh, very substantial parts of public service broadcasting in very, very large numbers, especially when it is well-resourced and well-made. Children's programming is another very good case in point. You might say there is so much children's programming, you know, there are now something like 25 dedicated children's channels mainly showing American cartoons but it, and other I mean, forms it, of American programming. This is know? the case, but isn't, isn't, what about the argument that providing a, an online resource, an on-demand resource in public service, will not attract audience? No, look, that's one of the challenges, and we, we said that when we floated the idea. I, I don't know that it will. You, you, my, my argument for public service broadcasting in, in, the, in the linear broadcast world uh, and the online world would be the same. You can only justify the public intervention if you believe that the broader benefits, the citizens' interest that you are seeking to meet here, uh, are being delivered. And for that, yes, of course, you have to have some degree of reach and impact. So let me, let me give you an example. Going back, you know, if, you know, I, it is good that there is, you know, I'm pleased from a public service broadcasting perspective that there are two substantial evening news bulletins that do UK news, regional news, and international news. If three people were watching those, it clearly would not be worth us as a country spending a penny on them. Uh, and the same would be true of an intervention. So you'd have to have some degree of reach and impact, of course. Otherwise, the argument doesn't stack up. But I would anticipate that you would you know, build that over time and that uh, it's something that you would think about in the context of partnerships and relationships and how you would market and so on and so forth. But it's, uh, I accept entirely that it's an, it, it, we don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. Equally, when television started itself and we put the BBC on air, no one knew for certain that anyone would listen to the BBC radio. Uh, but it turned out that they did, and it was a fantastic success. So it's, it's not a good argument for not doing it. It's an argument <coughs> for saying you'd have to review, after a couple of years, 
or a period of time as to whether it was having any reach and impact. Okay. I'm not sure you, you've got your definition of public service broadcasting. Oh, well, yeah. the, the answer to the definition of public service broadcasting, I'm not going to sit here and recite it to you, but I would... No. Is that true of a children's programme? Is it true of drama? Is it true of factual programmes? Is it true of history? No, it's not. <laughs> okay, look, 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 I, when you come to current affairs and news, there is a, that is the cornerstone of public service broadcasting, and I would agree with you that issues, it, is, it, it matters much more to me that uh, Channel 4's dispatches uh, that we looked at very closely the other day exposed some of what was being preached in some uh, mosques in Britain uh, and put that in the public domain. That matters far more to me than the number of people that watched it. I agree with you about that. But you, 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 you can't take that argument... I think with news and current affairs, you can take that argument a long way. As soon as you have a broader view about what public service broadcasting is, I think you have to also connect to in the great phrase, you know, making uh, the popular good but also the good popular. You have to be able to reach people because you're asking people to pay money for it. Okay. It's a compulsory tax. Last, last round of questions, and then I'm afraid we're going to have to close. There's one here, two, and three. Masters in Communication, Regulation and Policy. My question is regarding the, that to what extent the regulator can uh, influence the agenda setting of a broadcaster. Sorry, say that again because I missed to it. To what extent uh, the regulator can influence the agenda setting of a broadcaster on the pretext of uh, the content regulation. So this is impartiality. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, sorry. sorry. Um, my son from the City University I had a similar question. You had a report, I think, in September um, where uh, you were talking about changing the sort of fair and partiality rules of television news where you were just going to regulate the main mm. bulletins. I was wondering if you thought this might mean that the likes of Sky News might become a bit more like Fox News if you're not going to be regulating mm. uh, them anymore. Mm. And finally, brief, please. Um, David Evans, philosophy student. If the BBC were to broadcast a lecture with a squeaking door frequently distracting people's attention, I think somebody would be told off in front of some executive at the BBC or for that matter any other broadcaster and you would be told to fix it. Do you agree? <laughs> Um, and I'm going to just tack on, I'm going to abuse the chair here and just tack on my final kind of wrap-up question, which is, in the light of all the things we've been discussing, and in the light of the fact that um, there is a new European framework mm -hmm. to implement after all, um, what's your shopping list for the next phase of policy development? You've been working within the 2003 Communications Act, 
there will be another act. Mm. What do you want in it, or what do you want to discuss? Okay, uh, right. Uh, editorial content impartiality. Uh, no, we, we, the answer is we can't and would never interfere with the editorial content of a, uh, of a broadcaster. Uh, what happens is we, if they, they, they are required to broadcast within our broadcasting code, uh, and if they don't, uh, and it comes to our attention, or we see it, or someone complains about it, we then can find them in breach of code, and in the extreme, we can take their license away. So that is how impartiality is enforced. So we don't get involved prior to any transmission with anybody at all. It's post-transmission. Um, if you think about it, it would be impossible to do it pre-transmission, because you've got literally tens of thousands of hours going out every day. It's just inconceivable that you could do it that way. Uh, the more general impartiality question, we, we, you always have to read what we say carefully uh, because we, we didn't actually say that we wanted to get rid of impartiality. We merely said that looking forward, uh, we had to ask the question about whether impartiality, whether, whether the current full due impartiality rules would be appropriate for all services uh, in a world in which you'd be able to have, you know, you would be beaming in uh, or downloading or streaming uh, all sorts of clearly not impartial or partial services through your, uh, through your broadband connection in your living room. So the nature of reality uh, of, of communication services is changing. We're not living in that world of five linear channels anymore, and therefore we have to ask ourselves what, what the right approach is. But we were very, very clear that you know, impartiality is a cornerstone of you know, the public service broadcasters and generally licensed broadcasters is what you would want to see. Uh, so we were, we were posing the question about a longer-term situation and inviting people to think about the nature of the future that we, that we face. Uh, because I think the alternative is that uh, uh, we, will, we will just pretend something isn't happening when it is. Uh, I mean, there are, already, there are already services on sky and cable which you might argue are already uh, would not meet our impartiality requirements, and you know, Fox News is a good example. Uh, now, but the reason that we're not too concerned about that is because, in, firstly, it's a rebroadcast of a service aimed at Americans, so it's not really a UK service, and secondly, it's got an incredibly small audience here incredibly small. It's so small it doesn't even register in the ratings. So it's really not something to worry about. Sky News, to be fair, is, you know, we have never had, not that I can recall, ever reason, any reason to, um, to uh, call it for a breach of impartiality. Uh, it's a very well-run service from what I can see. And if it ever became like Fox, I think it would be in breach of impartiality quite quickly. But you found in favour of Fox once. Haven't we found against Fox once when it had a when it, uh, uh, it indulged in a particular piece of head banging in relation to the BBC over the Hutton report uh, and that was because suddenly it became you know, a very direct UK focused issue and it was you know, an accusation and a, and, a, and a treatment about a UK issue and a UK broadcaster and that was brought to our attention and we found them in breach on that but by and large, of course, Fox says almost nothing about UK politics. It's all, it's all focused on the US. Okay. 
There was, there was the one last question, and I'm afraid we're going to have to oh, yes. well, continue no, well, over I'll, I'll answer your, no, the next point. We, we, we're still thinking about what the next phase of uh, policy or, or legislative issues we, we might want to see. There's a few things up our sleeve, um, but I think we should probably wait for another day to explain what they are. Uh, I, I don't think we'll get an act next year, so there's plenty of time to, to see what else we want to uh, see develop. One, one thing I'm very clear one, about. One quick question. Do you, do you still want the schizophrenic duty to yes. protect citizens yes. and consumers? Yes, I think it's absolutely the right duty for us. Uh, absolutely 100% the right duty. It makes us balance the, 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 the twin interests. If we were a purely economic regulator, we'd be making very bad decisions. And if we, were, if we did not have uh, a strong uh, uh, economic regulation side as well, we'd be make, making bad decisions the other way. So I think it's absolutely right. Uh, and I will, I'll finish by answering the squeaking door question, uh, which is it doesn't bother me because I was here for four and a half years in in total when I was a student and the doors were a hell of a lot worse than that when I was here. <laughs> Ed Richards, all of you, thank you very much. Thank you.